it is probably safe to say that there is no adult, no Christian, if you will, in the assembly this morning who is not struggling with something. Probably safe to say there's not one in here who's not struggling with something significant in their lives. We don't know what each other's going through. But I believe it is certainly safe to say that there is not one in the assembly this morning that hasn't struggled with something significant in their lives, if not this morning, than in the not too distant past. Maybe something even catastrophic or life altering. Because you know, the fact is, despite our Sunday suits and our Sunday smiles and our comments to the contrary, Satan beats us up and beats us down. And he does so on a weekly, if not daily, and minute-by-minute basis. And Christians are not immune from distress, from discouragement, or from depression, or being dragged down by the tempests and turmoils of everyday life. Some, Some Christians struggle with the consequences of previously bad choices. Some struggle with the weight and pain of a guilty conscience. Some struggle with a past that is not their fault, a present that is not their preference, and a future that isn't any more promising. While there are a vast number of others who struggle from some personal, private, family, or physical issue or problem that nobody else knows about, truth is we all struggle with something. We all struggle with burdens that just seem like they're going to completely overwhelm us at times. As human beings, none of us are immune. But as Christians, none of us are alone. That's the key. That is unless, of course, we choose to be. But certainly that is not the plan of deity. One of the reasons that the word became flesh and and dwelt among us, emptying himself of equality with God and coming in the likeness of men and, and being made as a human or like his brethren in all things, one of the reasons he did that was so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. Please also turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, if you would. We would see this reinforced again in verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may do two things, notice. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, some might say, well, well wait a minute, Doug. Distress and discouragement and depression and frustration, those aren't temptations. Well, sometimes they are. Because you see, more often than not, these things come about as a direct result of falling to temptation. Quite often they come about as a direct result of falling for the temptation to take our eyes off of Jesus in the midst of our storms. Just like Peter did. Matthew 14, 22 through 31. And just like Peter, many times what sinks us beneath the waves and, and we're overwhelmed is the temptation not to continue to keep our eyes on Christ and God's promises in the very midst of our worst storms. Even though we know we'd ought to. But sometimes when those storms come, we get overwhelmed and we're more like Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 13, when he said, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And sometimes we want to cry out, if, if God is with me, why has this happened? Why is this happening? We're sort of like John the Baptist as well in Matthew 11, 1 through 6, when he sent emissaries to ask Jesus in verse 3, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And what makes that such a powerful event or account is the fact that this was John the Baptist who had earlier said to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He knew who Jesus was, but you see, his life had taken this turn. He'd not only done the right thing and preached the truth, and now he's in prison. And he's done the right thing, and, he, and he's begin, beginning to wonder, are, are you really the Christ? The same idea as Gideon. Well, if you're really God, why has this happened? It, it, it's this turmoil when our lives are upset and when we struggle with, with, with hard things, and, and we all do at some time or another, that we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus or maybe think he's not everything he said he would be. And, and, and we're tempted to do that. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 11. A very, very, very familiar passage. But maybe not a passage often studied as deeply as it needs to be. Matthew chapter 11. I want you to look with me at verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is that true? Is that true? Of course it's true. It's the Bible. Jesus said it. The word rest here is a word that means a ceasing from exertion for the purpose of regaining strength. Brother Lonnie Ritchie said the idea behind the word is the concept of refreshment. So this is not a promise of an end to work, but a promise of help in doing the work. I think that's key that we understand. 
Jesus is promising us help. He's promising us refreshment. Doesn't mean that all problems are going to go away the minute you become a Christian. You all know that. But the question is, okay, if Jesus gives rest, and he does, to those who come to him who are laboring under some of these incredible burdens, they're heavy laden. If that's, if that's true and he gives them rest, then why do so many Christians who have already come to him still spend so much time so heavily burdened? He said he'd give us rest, and yet we're often burdened. Why? Well, because that scripture is true, the answer has got to be one of two things. Either we never truly came to him all the way and in every way, or more likely, once we did come and the storm struck, we momentarily lost sight of him due to the storm's intensity. And as I, I, as I say that, I also think that sometimes we have a very limited concept of what it means to come to him. You know, often when we think of, of Jesus saying, come to me, what we think of and, and limit ourselves to exclusively is our initial belief and repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. There I've come to it. But there's more to come into Jesus than just belief, <coughs> repentance, and baptism. And while those things are absolutely essential to coming to him, they're not every facet of coming to him. In verse 29, Jesus gives us two more essential elements which help further explain what it means to come to him in verse 28. He continues right on. He says, come to me in verse 28, but now he's going to give you two more ways that we often overlook of, of what coming to him means. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's that promise of finding rest for our souls again. But notice in this verse, it involves taking his yoke and learning from him. Taking his yoke means joining him in daily service. It's like a, yo a yoke with, with a couple of oxen. It's getting in there and working alongside Jesus. That's, that's important to finding rest. See, it's not a, a cessation of labor. It's not a ceasing of labor. But it's, it's that Jesus will help us, and he'll be there to work with us. And, and that we need to make sure that we're laboring for him every day, working with him. That's take my yoke. And the second part that is essential to coming to him is learning from him. That's an ongoing thing. Notice he says that. Our increasing knowledge learn from me. That is how we come to Jesus. It is belief, it is repentance, it is baptism. It is continually learning from him and it is yoking up and serving alongside Jesus, serving in his cause and in his kingdom. That's how we find rest. It's how we find relief. It's how we find strength. I guarantee you this morning based upon the word of God right here, that those Christians who seem to be the most at peace and spiritually at rest, 
those Christians who seem to be the least burdened and heavily laden or who seem to be the most lacking in the pains and heartaches department in the congregation are not necessarily those with the least amount of problems in their lives but those with the most daily service and Bible study in their lives despite their trials and tribulations. We all got problems. It's not that those that are most at peace don't have any turmoil. It's not that they're not encountering their own stormy seas and fiery trials. It's just that they aren't sinking into the depths of despair because they have their eyes fully fixed on Jesus. They're making that concentrated effort to keep their eyes fully fixed on Jesus in learning more about him every day and serving him and being a part of his work every day. Their faith is built upon their daily study of the word of God and exhibited in their daily service to the kingdom of God. They're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And they trust him that if they, they are doing that, if they're putting the kingdom first, God will take care of everything else. Did he say he'd do that? Is that what he said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God all these, and his righteousness and all these things be added to you. That's what he said. And their faith or learning of him, which comes by hearing the word of God, is what they walk by every day in their lives that enables them to live so victoriously and so unburdened and so at peace, even if they're right in the middle of a raging storm in their lives. You see, it is possible, brethren, for us to be at rest in our souls despite the unrest in our lives. That is possible. Look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians about those, chapter 4. Look what he said in 2 Corinthians 4 about those who walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that phrase is actually in chapter 5, but leading up to it, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. How does he describe those that walk by faith and not by sight leading up to that? 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Look what he says in verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Oh, wait a minute, how can you not lose heart? Look at what you're going through. You're hard pressed, you're perplexed, you're persecuted, you're struck down. He said that's okay. See, it wasn't that there wasn't a storm in his life. But he said, we don't lose heart. See, he had peace in the midst of his storm. Because he said, even though our outward man, verse 16, is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Take my yoke up on you and learn from me. Our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do, do you hear, Paul? Joy, rest, and peace. In the middle of a storm, 
strength, security, and stability. You know what those six things are? They're all the first casualty of our Christianity when we lose sight of or take our eyes off of Jesus in the midst of our storm. Just ask Peter. Another overwhelming burden that many Christians often struggle under the immense weight of. And I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's, it's a big deal. A lot of people struggle with this, is when it comes to not being able to forgive themselves. When it comes to a guilty conscience they just can't get over. When it comes to a guilty conscience that robs them of rest and peace. A guilty conscience that hampers and hinders their Christian happiness. A guilty conscience, hear me loud and clear, a guilty conscience which they have absolutely no right to hold on to since God put that sin under the blood of Jesus Christ. I am not talking about deliberate sin, I am not, but listen, I am talking about mistakes of the past that we have repented of, that God put beneath the blood, that God has forgiven. Brethren, we gotta learn what grace means. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we focus so much on the things that we have to do that we get caught up holding sins against ourselves, which God has removed. Has God removed your sin? Has he? Then live like it. No, you don't repeat it. No, you don't go back into willful sin. No, and all that stuff that we know. No, 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 a thousand times no. But yes, 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 yes. Realize if it's been put beneath the blood, if God said it don't count, then it's gone. It was scrubbed clean upon our baptism for, for the forgiveness of those very sins, Acts 22, 16. Listen, something that we often forget that Peter reminds us of in 1 Peter 3, 21. You can turn there later, mark it down, look it up later, you know the verse, just listen, just listen. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3.21 that baptism is not for the purpose of giving us a clean body, but for the purpose of giving us a clean conscience toward God. I've seen too many Christians over the years, hard-working Christians, Christians that you would look up to and say, that's what it's supposed to look like. Who still just can't seem to understand or accept or live that what God put beneath the blood, they're supposed to have a clean conscience about. Everybody has done things that they'd do differently if they had the chance to do over again. We've all, as adults especially, we look back over, you know, they say hindsight's 2020, right? There's things we'd all have done different. We're humans, of course we would have. But we can't. We can't go back, we can't go back. We can't turn back time. But we can turn to God and turn our backs on those things, can't we? 
That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the whole purpose of the blood, to wash away and do away with our sins so that we who are weary and heavy laden can finally find peace and rest for our souls. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come to me and you will find rest. Well, you won't if you don't lay down the burden that he's taken away. Let me give you examples of two people who if anyone should have or could have or would have been, been weighed down and burdened by the guiltiest, guiltiest of consciences, it should have been these two. I'm going to tell you what. These two, man, glad I didn't have to try to sleep with what was on their conscience. Oh, and by the way, both of them were apostles. Should tell us something. Obviously, the first one is Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times, denied him with a curse. How'd you like to sleep at night with that on your conscience? We've talked about in the adult class how, how Jesus was being beaten to a bloody pulp and, and when the rooster crows and, and he, Jesus just finds the ability during this, this massive beatdown that he's taken to turn and look right straight at Peter right in the eye. How'd you like to sleep with that the next night? That's what Peter had too. You talk about a guilty conscience. Yo, even if they all deny you, I never will. He went outside and wept bitterly. But then in Mark 16 and verse 7, the angel of the tomb said, Tell my disciples and Peter to come and to meet me in Galilee. And you know, you know, you know what Peter did? Peter, who was, who was overwhelmed and, and had this guilty conscience, Peter, who was heavy laden, who was laboring and heavy laden under his own guilt, you know what Peter did? Peter went. He went to Jesus. Did he find rest? Why? Because that's what Jesus will give us. He went to Jesus. And what else did he do? He didn't just go to him. Like we say, belief, repentance, baptism. He didn't just go to him. What did Peter do? Remember, verse, remember the next verse? Peter took Jesus' yoke upon him, didn't he? He started doing the work, didn't he? He started, he started being involved in the king. He started preaching. He started teaching anybody that would listen. He, he took Jesus' yoke upon him, and, and he continued to learn from Jesus, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Peter came to Jesus because he was struggling and heavy laden, even though he was already a disciple, even though he was already an apostle. He came to Jesus, and when he came to Jesus... with his own guilty conscience. And, and, and Jesus forgave him and gave him a job to do. Peter took on the yoke and learned of his Lord. Certainly none of us would like to have the things on our conscience that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus did, killing Christians, passing judgment on them, forcing them to blaspheme, all of those things. And yet, what did he do? He didn't just, he didn't just Repent, didn't come to just believe on the road to Damascus and repent and, and be baptized. Those are absolutely essential. He did that, but then what did he do? He didn't leave it at that. He took up that yoke upon him and he continued to learn from God. And in that way, he fully came to Christ. And he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted him with until that day. He found peace and rest. In fact, he'd say in Acts 20 and verse 27, I am innocent of the blood of all men, even though 
I had their blood on my hands. But he realized that the men's blood on his hands and the men's blood on his conscience had been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as I said before, it's high time that we who have received God's grace understand not abuse, not take for granted, not overuse, not license to sin, none of those things. But it's time that those of us who receive God's grace understand what we have accepted. I've told you many times that when I buy an electronic device, which is very rarely, it'll do things that I have no idea that it will do. I have not begun to tap what my smartphone will do. It is much smarter than I am. But slowly I'm coming to understand at least a few of the features. I think as Christians sometimes, and you all can laugh at me because I'd still probably have my flip phone, but, but do we sometimes as Christians do that with the grace of God? Do we, do, have we accepted the grace of God but maybe don't understand the full implications of everything that means for us? Is that possible? We need to. Listen, when we accept God's grace, whether it's, whether it's guilty conscience or anything else, when we accept God's grace on God's terms, then God says our sins are forgiven. Is that right? Is that right? It's absolutely right. That's what the Bible says. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8 and verse 1. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, verse 7 and following. Not only does he forgive what we've done, but he's willing to continue to forgive because he knows that we're just dirt. He knows that we're just vapor. Not, not purposed sin, not deliberate sin but those dumb things we do that God doesn't want us to do. But brethren, it is high time, no matter, no matter what, no matter what, what category you want to look at, it is high time that some of us stop struggling beneath the weight that God said isn't even there anymore and start celebrating the fact that God has forgiven our sins. Obviously, there are obligations that go with grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 and Galatians 2 and verse 20. But living for him and taking on his yoke, taking up his work, helps us to find rest for our souls. Rest in the worst of storms. The third and final point I want to make this morning is simply this. The Lord's church was meant to be a haven of hope and a hospital for the hurting. I think that's a, a good way to put it. And I appreciated Eric's devotional Wednesday night on hope. The Lord's church is supposed to be a haven of hope. We serve the God of hope. Through the hope and comfort of the scriptures, tells us in Romans 15, the Bible's all about hope and the hope we have in Christ. The Lord's church is a haven of hope and a hospital for the hurting. It is a place for the weak and heavy laden that the Lord said that it was supposed to be. But if it is indeed that haven for the weak and heavy laden that come to Christ, how is that going to happen? As fully as God intends. Well, number one, yes, yes, by getting people into Christ, by getting them to hear and believe and repent and be baptized. 
by teaching them about God's love and grace and forgiveness and, and plan of salvation so they can accept it. Yeah, that, that's the beginning of, of it. Yes, by teaching them the importance of living every day for the Lord, yeah. Yes, by getting them to understand what it means to be more than conquerors in Christ, yes, yes, that's true. Yes, by helping them to internalize and exercise the essentials of daily study and service, and, and yes, by teaching them how to walk by faith and not by sight. All of those things are, are how we become a, the haven of hope and hospital for the hurting for the weak and heavy laden that we ought to be, but there's another one. There's another one. One that sometimes kind of gets lost or overlooked. And that's this. When we all fully understand that the reason that God put us in one body is that we are all here to help one another get to heaven. Paul uses the analogy of a human body and the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you, and, and all of those things. If I cut my arm off right here, and it's separated from the body, it's not going anywhere. If I pluck my eye out, it's not going where my body goes. But my eye is meant to help me to see the dangers that could cut my arm off so I don't cut my arm off because my arm needs to go where the rest of my body goes. And my arm is here, amongst other things, to make sure that something doesn't get in my eye to blind me so that my eye doesn't work. You see, my hand helps my eye, my eye helps my hand, my feet helps. See, my body as a whole, all of the members are here to help the rest of my body go wherever it is to go home. When you go out and get in your cars, you couldn't do that without your eyes. Not real well. You could, I suppose. We have to understand if we're going to be that haven of hope and hospital for the hurting, we are here. One of our main purposes in the church is to help each other get to heaven. Did you know that? You know why? Because most all of us either are this morning or have in the past struggled with something overwhelming. And there's times that we all need help. And our, one of our main objectives as the body of Christ is to help one another get to heaven. The worst possible thing a person can do when they're going through their worst storm Worst possible, and it's what, we, it's what some of us all want to do, okay? What do you want to do when you're just hurt and you're going through one of the worst storms of your life? Some of us want to psychologically or spiritually curl up in the fetal position and just wait until it passes, right? Worst thing you can do, any of us, when we're going through that worst of storms is to isolate ourselves from the body. Did that work for Elijah? Remember Elijah has this great victory, gets threatened by Jezebel, what does he do? Right? Off and running. Isolates himself. What did God tell him? Elijah, what are you doing here? Get up. Here's your assignment. I've got 7,000 that have not backed. Elijah, you, you think you're alone, but you ain't. There's other people out there just like you, Elijah. You're not alone. I don't want you here alone. I've got 7,000 out there, and I've got a job for you to do. Elijah, get up and go do what you're supposed to do. And, and brethren, if the church is designed that we're all as part of the body supposed to be muscles and, and help one another, the worst thing we can do when we're going through this, the, the, the worst crises of our lives, the worst possible thing we can do is isolate ourselves from that body that is meant to carry us. 
Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 2, please turn there. I do not believe this is an incorrect statement, nor do I believe this is an, uh, an overstatement. I believe this is an honest statement based on the Bible. I cannot get to heaven without you. Eyeballs that are left on the side of the road don't go anywhere. Fingers that are cut off and amputated don't go anywhere. They don't go with the rest of the body. I don't believe that I can make it to heaven without you. And every one of us needs to look around at our brethren and say the same thing. That's why God, the Bible tells us God created the body as he did. He put together the body the way he wanted it, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And, and we see this idea in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If I think I can make it on my own to heaven, I'm, I'm deceiving myself. If I think that I'm totally capable of doing this all by myself, that I am so righteous that I don't need anybody's reinforcement or anybody's strength or anybody's counsel when I mess up, then I've deceived myself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one will bear his own load. As, as you look at that, you see in verse 2 that we're to bear one another's burdens, and then you see in verse 5 that we're supposed to all bear our own burdens. And you look at that on the surface, you say, well, how does that work? If we're supposed to take care of each other's burdens, but each one's responsible for his own, then the brother's burden that I'm carrying, he's not responsible for, how does that work? Here's how it works, very, very simple. In verse 2, the Greek word that is used there is a word that means a very, very heavy, huge weight. It is the word baros, B-A-R-O-S. It is the burden. It means a heavy load, a, an overwhelming, like, three-ton job, okay? It, I, there's not a number on it. I'm just using that to, it's heavy, super heavy. While the word load in verse 5 is the Greek word fortune, and it means pack or backpack. Do you see the difference? I can lift my own backpack. But some days, I see a crate that's the size of this building and filled with stone. I can't lift that by myself. I can carry my backpack. You can carry your backpack. But if I see a brother or sister who's got this crushing, overwhelming weight, then I need to help them. That's, what that, that's how that works. Even with their own backpack still on, verse 5. In other words, the law of Christ, verse 2, demands that we leave no brother or sister to bear the heavy stuff by themselves. The Lord's church has the cure, the answer, and the antidote to helping relieve one another's having to bear the heaviest of burdens. And that antidote is each one of the rest of us. And that brings us to a model prayer of one of the people whose burden beyond belief. Turn with me in your Bibles back to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Psalm 102. 
Look at the, if you have a, a superscription above yours, I know in my New King James I do, and it says, a prayer of the afflicted, Psalm 102, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. He's looking for speedy relief because he is just so overwhelmed with anguish and anxiety. Verses 3 through 5, he says, my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. And, and I want you to think about the picture that's drawn here. He said, my days are consumed like smoke, like this little rift of, of smoke or, or vapor. What happens when you have smoke that comes up into the atmosphere, just kind of, whether it's a fire or whatever it is, you have a little bit of smoke or mist that comes up. What happens immediately? It just kind of dissipates and spreads. It tears itself apart, right? He said, that's what my days are. My days are, are being ripped and torn apart like a vapor. They're quick and they're just, they're, there's just no form to them. Life sometimes consumes, life's burdens consume our time and energy. And, and our days, we might feel, are, are, are vaporous and, and nothing's going right and there's nothing secure and we, we feel like life isn't worth living and there's nothing solid and there's nothing steady and, and everything is just going nuts like smoke. And he says in verse 3, the burning bones indicate this terrible physical pain and, and some are going through that. He says he's, he's heartbroken and he's wounded, cut down like grass. And, and he's suffering so bad he can't even eat. You ever, you ever been so sick at heart you just can't eat? That, that's where he was. Verse 4. By the way, that's what depression will do to you. He's so depressed that his, his, his body is nothing but skin and bone. Verses 6 and 7, he says, I lie awake, I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. I want you to notice what he brings up here. He said in verse 7, I'm like a sparrow, check it out, alone, isolated. Sleepless, alone, lonely, and isolated. Notice also as he describes these animals and their environment, they are out of their element. Often when people hurt so bad as he's hurting, they withdraw. They withdraw into the shadows. They just want to be alone, and, and it only intensifies their agony. King Solomon concerned, con, uh, confirmed this in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Verse 8, he says, My enemies reproach me all day long. As I read, those who deride me swear an oath against me. Let me tell you what, the enemy Satan will taunt such a one, will tear and rip at such a one, Verses 9 through 11, he says, ashes were familiar to him as food. His tears fell in his drink. What a terrible mess this guy is in. He's alone. But as we read on, we see what was going to help even him, even in that situation. We see in verse 12, God who is independent of and operates above time. Verse 13, the God who is full of mercy and pity. Verses 14 through 16, God is trustworthy. God will keep his word perfectly. Even though I'm in this mess, God is faithful. 
And we see that no matter what we may see around us, don't miss this, God answers the prayers of sincere seekers, verse 17. He will act, and men will praise him for his answer. There is no burden too big. There is no suffering too severe. There is no sin so devastating that God cannot deal with it. Did you hear that? That God cannot deal with it. There is no such thing if we truly let him have it all the way and nothing less. Sometimes we don't let him have it all the way. We say he can take it, but then we take it back. We want to worry about it. We want to fix it. No, if we give it to God, we need to let God deal with it. People are going to come to the Lord's Church. Hopefully you all read the bulletin. There was some good news in the bulletin this week. But what we need to understand when people start coming to the Lord's Church is we continue to try to reach out. Listen, when people come, they are going to bring their burdens and their baggage. Just like we did, they're going to. They're going to bring with them their broken hearts, their broken lives, their broken families, and their broken marriages. They are going to bring their messes. They're going to bring their misconceptions, and they're going to bring their misunderstandings. They're going to bring their bad habits. They're going to bring bad morals and guilty consciences. And you know what they're going to expect to find when they get here? Rest for their souls, because that's what Jesus promised. And brethren, we better be able to give it to them. If we're truly going to be the haven of hope and hospital for the hurting that the Lord desires for the weak and heavy laden, then we'd better be able to give them what they're looking for. But you see, here's the thing. We can't unless we first experienced it ourselves. See, that's the key. It's what we need to be practicing and showing each other all the time. If you're a Christian, you're going to struggle, but if you're a Christian, you are not alone. So the question is this. Have you truly come to Jesus all the way? Or were you just simply baptized? Have you previously come to Jesus but somehow lost sight of him due to the terrifying wind and waves of your own personal, maybe even life and death storm? And by the way, if you have, welcome to the human race. You're not alone. Has Satan got you struggling and reeling under some overwhelming weight of sin? that the Lord has either taken away or is now waiting to remove right this minute so you don't have to any longer? Do you know that you need help in becoming a better burden bearer to others right now that God wants you to be in this place? Do others here know that you will bear their burden? Or do you have a burden that needs to be bare? If you have any of these needs this morning, please, please, don't just stand in the pew and sing the song. Please come down and let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing.